Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden at Fitz University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, as you no doubt hear, and as I'm sure listeners at home or in their earbuds probably hear, um, we're having a few audio difficulties. We're getting the new year off to a, uh, to a lovely start, technologically speaking. Uh, my seven-year-old microphone decided to clunk out, so my apologies if our audio is not quite as clear as it normally is, but we thought the show has to go on, uh, so we would proceed anyway. So rest in peace for my seven-year-old microphone, Kobus, but it is time to <laughs> kind of keep going forward, you know, it, and it died literally like 10 minutes before the show, so apologies for everybody, but isn't that the way Murphy's Law says that things are supposed to happen? Um, but rest assured, we will fix this, and finding a good audio microphone in Vietnam uh, it's going to be my weekend challenge. So, uh, <laughs> okay. Good luck. Good uh, yeah, exactly. Um, listen, 2017 is off to a very interesting start when it comes to the environment. We began the year, uh, or on New Year's Eve, in fact, when the Chinese government announced that it would formally ban the ivory trade beginning in 2018. And that was something that was just huge. Hallelujahs went up all over the place. It almost felt like the battle had been won. That is, now we've solved the ivory problem. Well, that's it. And the truth is, it's far more complicated than that because China's relationship with Africa's wildlife and natural environment extends far beyond ivory and rhino horn, which gather up most of the public attention. But there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of other species, both animal and plant, that are in danger. And again, I don't necessarily want to put it at the feet of the Chinese, but the Chinese are engaged in this. And one such creature, or actually not a creature, in this case it's a, you know, a resource, is rosewood, or as we're going to learn today, bloodwood. Rosewood is facing a similar kind of set of problems as ivory does, in the sense that, like ivory, there's also a, a centuries-old carving tradition in China. It is used in China to say, to signal wealth. And because there's a whole bunch of new rich people in China, there's a big demand for it. And also it comes from Africa, and it, it is gathered in the forests by the poorest of the poor, like ivory, to great environmental damage. And interestingly, like ivory, it takes a long time for rosewood to mature. Almost, you know, elephants themselves can live up to 70 years old. And rosewood can, you know, has a lifespan that's much longer than that. So to find out more about this relationship between China and Africa and rosewood and the rosewood trade... Uh, Sixth Tone, which is this English language newspaper, kind of one of a young, hip, kind of the new generation of online news sites in, in China, uh, sent their reporter Shi Yi uh, to, to the DRC to look into this. Shi Yi, for those of you who listen to our show, um, is, is, has been a regular guest. We had her on last year when we commemorated the fact that she was the 2015 Environmental Journalist of the Year. She's part of a young new generation of Chinese journalists and environmental, I wouldn't say activists, but those who are really pushing the new values in China when it comes to conservation and environmentalism. And we are thrilled to have you back on the show again, Shi'i. Thank you so much for joining us and a very good evening. Hello, good evening to everyone. Listen, Shi'i, you know, you decided to tackle this question of rosewood. Um, rosewood, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is just one of many 
different wildlife and conservation issues that really stand in between the Chinese and Africans when we're talking about pangolin, rhino horn, lion bones, shark fin, um, other you know forms of wood uh, in, in Cameroon and the DRC. Why did you pick this particular issue to focus on rosewood or bloodwood, as you say, it's nicknamed in Chinese? Um, one correction, um, rosewood in, uh, in Chinese is a collection of many different species. And the bloodwood is not, um, we're actually trans, we're talking about, my article actually talking about one specific species that's being traded to China in recent years quite a lot. And in Chinese, we translate the Chinese name of that to uh, bloodwood. So it's one of the uh, rosewood we're so talking about. Bloodwood it's all, is it's not just, all of rosewood. Uh, good. Okay, that's an important distinction. So bloodwood is just one okay. kind of variation or... Yeah, well, uh, one species. One species of, of, the whole of rosewood. Connections. Good. Yes. Okay. So why, why this topic? How did this come onto your radar? We know rosewood. Um, trafficking rosewood has been a problem for so long. And uh, I was uh, planning to travel back to Africa again to write an article about this. And uh, there's some, this is a piece of news about um, a rosewood um, in Zambia just come to my mind and this um this news says there's uh they there's some kind of rosewood called mukula in zambia and actually um china started to um import it quite a lot in recent years and zambia the president of zambia already already like says we have to stop this because so many Mukula in that country have been illegally trading to China and push this species into endangered so far. And actually the problem also, same problem also happening in the DRC, the Congo. So that's how I decided to go over there and write an article about that, hope people know what's going on. And Shei, can you give us an idea of what rosewood is used for in China? Like, why why rosewood? Why not all the hundreds of other different kinds of wood available in the world? What what is special about it? Um, I think um, I mean rosewood. Uh, the story is a little bit different than like ivory, like rhino home, because you know, all, all we need all we need wood anyway. Like those wood in China, back a few hundred years ago, people used that for furniture. But, you know, we read some articles and uh, maybe like a hundred years ago, those wood just for the royal emperor, they use, they make that into furniture. But now people start to get richer and they think this is some luxury they could afford or this is some good taste. So there are more and more people start to, um, they buy rosewood furniture. That, that's, that's how we use that in China. I guess, you know, what people, and I, I'm sure a lot of people listening to the show, you know, are probably having this sense of kind of like, oh God, I mean, the frustration that we, we keep running into the same problem in China which is, as people get wealthier, they want things, but given the size of the Chinese population, when the demand goes up for anything, it just immediately exceeds the supply. 
So whether it's pangolin, whether it's rhino horn, whether it's lion bone, whether it's ivory, now rosewood or bloodwood, as you talked about. So what can we do about this? I mean, we keep running into this problem over and over again. Is there any solution in your mind to containing Chinese demand for these wildlife and natural resource products that are endangered to, in such a way that it actually becomes sustainable or are we bound just because of the Chinese demand just to run through some of these things? Yeah, I totally agree with you because um, I think, I mean, you heard a similar story always. This people like something, then it's become less and less. What I think is um, it's, it's different and animal products, I mean, for trees, timbers, actually everybody needs that. We can't live without them. But what you need is you can choose to buy something that actually more sustainable. Like, you know, rosewood, they grow so slow. They It takes like nearly a century for some of the species to go mature, to grow big. So, I mean, you need very good management. I mean, you can choose some trees, like you know, they grow fast. And for most of us, it's it's very simple. Like you don't need those luxury goods, right? You can use normal stuff, and uh, your, I mean, the happiness in your life is doesn't depend on all of this stuff. That that's what I think. It's just when people buy those to the furniture, they probably don't think. In that way, they don't know so so many like species going dangerous. It's the story happened in China before. Like we read books, like since a century ago, there's some uh, rosewood in Hainan province, that's an island in the far south of China. They grow all over the island. Then people uh, just over harvested and they become endangered, then push people to go to other Asian countries. And then now when other when some species gets endangered in Asia, then people go to Africa because they have they they man they the government they all have weak management. So it's it's the same story. It sounds very familiar. Yeah, Kobus, let me ask you a quick question here. Can you know? Do you think? So I'm just going to pick up on what Shuri said. And people are very quick to blame the Chinese. You know, Chinese demand for all of this. You see on our Facebook page and in posts, people, you know, they they use the worst language to describe the Chinese for their consumption of these products. But do you think that the West, uh, you know, particularly or the industrialized world, including Japan, has any moral legitimacy to criticize the Chinese? And I'm not saying that in a, in a kind of loaded question. I'm wondering if we in the West who consume tons of stuff that comes from the developing world can actually criticize the Chinese, or are the Chinese doing something that is more egregious than our consumption patterns in the West? I don't think the West has any real moral standing to criticize China. What you frequently find in uh, in Western discourse about Chinese consumption is that there is this kind of monsterization of Chinese consumption. So if you, I, I did an experiment a while ago where I just Googled China and insatiable. Um, and it's just hit after hit after hit, like, you know, kind of like China is described as having insatiable appetites for every single thing on earth. Um, and so there is this kind of thing where any kind of Western discussion of Chinese consumption always tends to to present that consumption as freaky. 
Um, whereas Western consumption is seen as normal, um, you know, so no one, no one talks about, for example, uh, you know, about the the idea of up- upgrading your phone from, say, an iPhone six to an iPhone seven. No one discusses that as a monster, as, as a kind of a, a freakish or horrible or, you know, kind of disgusting kind of way, like a mode of Western consumption. That's just seen as as normal, um, so, you know, kind of. But obviously, you know. The, the kind of minerals, the, the rare earths and, and other minerals like cobalt and so on that are used in, in cell phones drive very similar kind of uh, extraction economies in Africa as ivory does. I think the difference maybe is that in China, so much of, of these particular products, things like ivory, things like rhino horn, are connected to ancient culture. You know, so, so much of it in China goes back to, like, you know, there was a tradition of carving this kind of wood for centuries and now people are, are, are linking back into that. And that is, seems to me that's a little bit different, this interesting kind of thing to unpack. Um, so just to, to connect onto that, um, to take it to the African side, you mentioned in your article that you compare it to other uh, commodities like copper, for example, and uh, how copper and cobalt, for example, you know, mostly the elites in the DRC get rich out of it. Whereas the people who tend to make a little bit of money out of rosewood in um, in the DRC are poor people. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit and talk about, like, what is the impact on the local community uh, in the DRC that you saw? When I was there, I actually very surprised because every loggers I talked to, I asked them the same question. Do you like to work with Chinese? They all said, yes, I like it very, very much because they have no other choices. If, if, they, don't, if they don't cut down trees, they can only live on their small farms or they burn some cocoa and just a little, a little bit of money out of that. And they still, they still cut down trees to burn charcoal. So it's for so many of them, if they log the uh, rosewood out to Chinese, usually like they earn at least twice than they could. So, and it's not a big money. It's, it's like they probably own less than $10 a day, but it's already very, very good for most of them. So, I think that's so that's oh. we're talking about the the poor of the poorest. So it's it's really I mean it's hard to to judge. I think. Yeah, and I think you bring up an interesting point here because a lot of people make the incorrect assumption that the Chinese are cutting the wood down themselves. That Chinese in Africa are actually doing this. And what you're saying and what your reporting found is that Chinese are engaging uh, locals. To do that, to do that work, and then buying it from them and, and exporting it back, and this kind of echoes what we heard uh, from Greenpeace in Cameroon with some of the logging, and also in the Republic of Congo, where the Chinese are taking advantage of very weak governance systems and, and some, you know, uh, and legal systems to get illegal permits. And in this case, is maybe in the Congo, in the Republic of the Congo, they are doing some of the cutting, but for the most part, it's Africans that are doing the cutting. Uh, in through in Zambia, DRC, uh, Zimbabwe, and Cameroon. And so, talk to me a little bit about that side of of your reporting that you you kind of talked about the corruption that exists uh, and that fuels this trade in bloodwood. I think I mean I can give you some examples. Like when I just landed in Kinshasa, 
And the custom officers actually ask for bribe. They ask me to pay them some money so they can just give me a stamp and enter into that country. And no matter where I go, if I talk to local officers, they always ask the same thing. They, they say something like, oh, give me, give me some money so I can buy a cup, a cup of coffee, something like that. And I think that's pretty the same thing every Chinese would have when they're in the DRC. So it's make now Congo is very I mean it's very is very different than other African countries I've seen. It's poorer and they they hold uh, how can I say this? Um, it's it's the least developing developed country I've seen in Africa. So it's really like people don't have anything at their small houses. And even, even the officers, some Chinese people told me, like a policeman, they probably, their salary is about like 50 US dollars a month. And it's legal to hire a police to be your guardman, to, to be a guardman for you because um, like if for foreigners go over there and some place they think it's not safe for them so they can actually hire a police so that's yeah so you, uh, so you just see the system the system is completely weak um and you know where, where people are paid so are paid so low then of course they they need to gather other money to survive yes i think so and you know uh, Congo is not a cheap. It's not a cheap country. So so many things because they don't make things by a lot of things by themselves. So many many things are imported from other countries. And if you go to a convenience store, there's so many things that local people couldn't afford. So here we are again confronting another environmental crisis. Um, it, it, there's no doubt in my mind that you know the logging will go on, and and there's no force in the Congo that can bring it under control. So the question is, what do we do about it? You know, you tell us with your excellent reporting that you've done both in, both in, in the Congo and also you, you went to the ports in China to see where the, the wood actually ends up. But where, what's the solution here? Or is there a solution? Is it naive of us to think that this can actually be solved? Um, what I think is most important right now is China really, really need to change its laws when we're talking about importing logs because, you know, not like EU, not like America. Like China government, when, when they're when they imp, um, importing logs, they actually, I mean, all the documentation you ask is not, they don't need to show the logs actually come from legal source. So I think that needs to be changed immediately. But do you have faith in Chinese laws? Because corruption is a big problem in China, too. Uh, yes, but that's a big question. But if we, I mean, at least if you change the laws immediately, um, things will get better, right? Because everything takes a long time. You just need to do it step by step. And if you ask me what needs to be done right now, I think this is the first thing we can do. Yeah. I do agree with some NGOs like the law, it's, it's too weak right now because um, illegal logs can get into this country so easily. Kobus, here we are once again on the front door of the Chinese legal system where we hope that the Chinese legal system and also a generational push from people like Shi and her generation 
will kind of curb demand in China. Uh, you know, call me a little bit skeptical here because, you know, the Chinese legal system has not proven itself yet. It may be changing, but it's not proven itself yet to be effective in really curtailing demand on a massive scale. Uh, as we're seeing with ivory and rhino horn, a lot of it's coming through here in Vietnam. So China's a very big and porous country. So I agree with Xi. I think changing the laws is the first step. Hopefully changing buying patterns, you know, as Wild Aid says, when the buying stops, the killing does too. Hopefully in this case it's the cutting does too. But it makes me sad yet again that here we are facing another environmental crisis, Kobus. I think that we would be naive to think that this is just a governance issue. Um, governance is a very, very important part of it. And, you know, kind of clearly as she has shown, governance in Africa, especially in the DRC, is, is really not up to the task. But I think this is really what we're seeing. is It's a, it's a crisis of underdevelopment. Um, and, you know, you can govern as hard as you as you want. You're not going to change the fact that people are hungry. Um, and so I think in this sense, I tend to come down on the Chinese side of the rhetoric rather than on the American side. You know, I don't think that you can governance your way out of this problem. Like, you can only really address this problem if you address the wider problem of systemic underdevelopment in Africa. And, but the problem is, it's like once that development has happened, I'm not sure if there's any forest left to protect. Yeah. So that's the issue. So Shri, if people want to find your story, what's the best way they can do it? Where can they find your, your reporting on the subject? Uh, they can find my articles at this website, sixtong.com. That's uh, six S-I-X-T-H-T-O-N-E. Uh, it is a fun website. So if you want to kind of tap into a little bit of the zeitgeist of what uh, you know, Chinese, you know, China, what's going on in China. It, it's designed for a foreign audience, so you get more of a foreign take, but at the same time, you get a lot more variety of Chinese news than you would in the Western press. Uh, so, you know, check out Sixth Tone. It's kind of an adjunct to the Chinese, you know, equivalent of that, which is called the paper. So if you read Chinese, you're going to definitely want to follow the paper. Uh, both are, are, you know, as Chinese news sites go, are, are quite good. So, you know, and, and, and reporting from Xi is absolutely fantastic. So Xi, we're just so thrilled you were able to join us back on the program again. Uh, you know, congratulations on some excellent reporting. Thank you very much. Good. And for Kobe, we can talk next time. Yes, we will. But hopefully we will stop talking about depressing issues like this because I, yeah. I, I, I enjoy speaking with you on other occasions as well. But, uh, you know, we will, we will continue to cover the environmental story. And it's one of these things that we want to try and shift the focus away from Ivory a little bit because uh, Ivory does get too much attention. And, I mean, right now there are a lot of other issues that need this kind of awareness and attention so i'm really really happy oh just one quick question she will your re will your reporting be done in chinese because you wrote it in english but will it be available in chinese as well i hope so okay because well, honestly that's <laughs> who needs, that's will. who needs to read it you know i mean so but listen we will we will post all of Shuri's reporting on this on our site and in our show notes and so you can find it there at the china africa project for kobus fenstaden i'm eric olander thank you so much for listening the discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at E. Olander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. 
Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.